right, boys and girls, episode 150. Man, that is a lot of damn episodes. But I am happy that you are here to listen and experience this milestone with me. And of course, my wonderful guest, Hannah Howard, the author of Feast. And just a heads up, Hannah is not a coach. She is a foodie that also has a lot of experience helping women all over the world tackle on eating disorders. So I am super excited about this episode as this hits home for me with my issue that I'm dealing with of binge eating. So hopefully someone out there listening will get some sort of relief or benefit from this episode with what was said. So without further ado, here's Hannah. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the wonderful Hannah. Say hello. Hi. Uh, So I always like to break the ice for my audience and ask every single one of my guests, what do you got planned for the weekend? So I'm visiting this kind of magical place in Plimpton, Massachusetts, called Just Right Farm. And I'm here to write a story about the, it's a farm and a restaurant, and I'm working on a story, but it's the kind of work that's so fun it's kind of hard to call it work because I'm cooking and eating and hanging out on the farm so I feel pretty lucky to get to spend my weekend here nice and since you're from New York how does it compare being out in like the country compared to the city it's well, you know, it's hot now, and summer in the city is maybe my least favorite time because everything starts to kind of ferment and smell, and it's just <laughs> a little gross, and I feel like the subways are the seventh circle of hell, so I feel like it's the perfect time to leave, even though I am a dedicated New Yorker. Nice. So what's the thing to do in New York? Because I always like asking my guests, like, what you know, they recommend if someone's never been to New York in their entire life, what would you tell them to go do? Ooh, I love taking one of the ferries because you can really see the city well from the water. And um, just this time of year, it's so fun to go to some of the parks, like maybe Brooklyn Bridge Park, which has a really cool retro carousel and a beautiful view of Manhattan. And then you can eat some really delicious pizza and some ice cream from the Brooklyn Ice Cream Factory. And if it's a weekend, they have the Brooklyn Flea Market there sometimes. And it's just like cool, quirky stuff. So that's one of my kind of favorite, a little bit touristy New York days. But the thing about New York is there's just it's just endless. There's so much going on. And that's part of why I love it is you can't run out. That's awesome. Yeah, so if my audience listening, make sure you wrote all that stuff down and go do it when you go to New York. (laughs) Um, So also for my audience, can you do like a quick little intro of who you are, what you do, and how did you get into the food industry? Because you're not a coach, but Jason uh, connected us, and I'm really curious to kind of figure out what your story is and how you got to be who you are today. Absolutely. It's so cool that... Jason reached out to me and then Jason introduced me to you because I feel like even though I'm definitely not a coach and I'm not a trainer or anything like that, um, there is definitely some sort of synergy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a food person. I My first career was in restaurants. I thought I wanted to have my own restaurants. And then after working in them for many years, I thought, that I still love food. I love being around food, but maybe there was a way to kind of do that without managing the day-to-day operations of actually making one work. So I'm a food writer, primarily. I write about chefs and restaurants and food trends and recipes. And um, my first book, which is called Feast, True Love In and Out of the Kitchen, came out in April. And Feast is my memoir of working my way through restaurants and falling in love with food and recovering from an eating disorder. So the other part of what I do kind of on my own time 
is talk to mostly women, but some men too, about um, my experience struggling with and then recovering from a whole bunch of kind of iterations of eating disorder stuff. I struggled with anorexia. I struggled with binge eating um, and then making peace with that and finding out how to have a more happy and healthy relationship with food and with their bodies and with their themselves. Awesome. So I'm going to try to unravel everything that you just said. Yeah, I said a lot. Uh, I know, I know, but this is going to be good. Um, I'm, I, I want to know, like, how did you get into, like, writing in the first place? Like, what made you, you know, start and had that kind of, like, oh, my God, this is what I need to do, and then you ran with it. Like, how did you start in the first place? How did I start which which aspect? Uh, with writing. Oh. Yeah. Um. I think sometimes I think, oh my gosh, it's like some sort of sickness that I've always loved to write so much. I feel like I, it's part of who I am. When I was a kid in middle school, I would write these stories about the sleepovers I had with friends and the crushes that I had on boys. And um, I put it into a zine that I called Power Dreams, and I would, like, I got a P.O. box, which I was so excited about, and I would trade zines with people around the country, and jokingly, my fiancé says that my book, there were, there were three issues of Power Dreams, and he calls my book feast sometimes Power Dreams number four, um, but I've just, I've always loved to write, and it's also been incredibly satisfying to take the messy or exciting or painful aspects of life and then turn them into a story, it feels like I get to really make meaning from them, like make something from it. That's so cool. And I'm, I'm kind of curious because you've been in so many different publications. Like how do you like present yourself to like a major magazine? Because I know a lot of coaches, some of their like dreams is to like write for Men's Health magazine, for example. So how do you approach a magazine or did someone find you like how does it all start yeah I mean I do think that for me this the story has been a lot of one thing leading to the next thing and I think that there is some sort of like magic combination of working your ass off um being really lucky meeting the right people you know all of these different things but I think my um advice for pitching publications, which has been actually something that I've always felt a little bit challenged by and sometimes insecure about, is to really get to know what that publication is about so that you know that how exactly how your story that you want to tell fits into it. So, you know, I'm sure everyone has like some really great stories, but they need to be the really great story that the editor is going to be able to plug into what they're already doing. So I think that's been the most helpful thing for me in getting the right fit. But um, I think it's like luck, hustle, work, and repeat. <laughs> nice. So when you got your first like you know writing gig for a magazine, like what was some of the things that you learned and had to adjust? Because I feel like sometimes, you know, when someone's writing, they just kind of fall into their own kind of zone and that's all they know. But I remember, I can't remember who was talking about it, but when they had their first experience with an actual editor, they were like kind of blown away of the process in order for their work to be put into a magazine. So I'm wondering if you had a similar experience or just learned something from, you know, another editor. Yeah, definitely. Well, my first kind of writing gig was as an intern during college at Serious Eats. And at the time, it the food food it was I want to say 2007 or 2008 and food blogs were brand new and super exciting and we were kind of in a way rebelling against this traditional magazine mentality in that I remember being once super embarrassed about making a mistake and my editor telling me that's the amazing thing about the internet is look, we can just change it right now, you know? So there was a little bit kind of less pressure and intensity 
and um, structure than there would be for a traditional print publication. But I think as I have worked with editors, it kind of comes back to like, what is the voice of the publication? What are they going for? Um, I was so excited that I got to write the story for New York Magazine about I'm getting married in September. And the story was about finding wedding dresses when you don't wear a sample size, when you don't wear a size zero or a size two. And um, I wrote this like whole long tale about you know, how hard it was to find a dress and going into these places and feeling embarrassed. And um, that all kind of got cut out of the piece because that's not what they wanted. This was a very specific kind of story for a specific publication. So I'm really happy with how it turned out. It's just way more straightforward. So I think it's like um, writing for a magazine or a publication, it's not about your voice, it's about their voice, or it's about finding maybe where your voice and their voice, their voice intersect. And that, for me, has been like the, the challenge, but also kind of fun. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that might be like a tough thing for some people who are trying to be writers, because now with the internet being so available, you kind of just always want to explain your own opinion. But then if you wanted to get in a larger scale and, yeah, write for a magazine, you might have to adjust that. Exactly. Um, so I'm also curious about your experience in the restaurant like business. Like, How did you first get into it? What made you want to start something like that? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved food and cooking. My mom was an awesome cook, and we used to spend our Saturdays together going on these kind of grocery pilgrimages to the farmer's market and We'd go to the uh, Middle Eastern store for olives, and then we'd go to the Italian store for mozzarella. And, you know, I loved, I felt like that was kind of magical and fun. And I needed some money, so my first restaurant job was as a freshman in college. I applied for a job on Craigslist because it looked interesting, and I was a hostess at a super fancy very old school French fine dining restaurant on the Upper West Side. And I worked there for about two years as a hostess. And even though the hostess job was fairly boring, getting to see that caliber of restaurant kind of blew my mind. We just, I mean, I tasted things I had never tasted before. I got to see the way that the kitchen was operating perfectly tuned, almost like this dance and the precision and the creativity and the whole thing was just super inspiring to me. And the ener- that and the other thing is that energy of a, a really busy night where everything is uh, flowing and I, I loved it. And right away I felt like I was addicted and I wanted more. So that was kind of the first restaurant job. And from there I just like kept wanting to learn more and do more and be at the heart of it. That's great. And I think another interesting thing is like my wife used to work in the restaurant business a lot as a as a chef and she was telling me that it's very, very male dominated and she said to me like she you almost have to communicate with all the other male chefs at their level and don't let whatever they say to you kind of bring you down because kitchens are they, they say a lot of stuff back there that would not go well in like the public but I'm kind of curious about your experience in working like in a male-dominated profession yeah I mean I think that there that that kind of stereotype of the machismo male chef is there for a reason and that I think it's changing but not fast enough so, I mean, especially I got my start in the front of the house and it felt like this weird sort of delineation. There were, where I worked, zero women. There was one woman pastry cook, no women savory cooks. All of the servers were men, except for maybe one woman. All of the hosts were women. And it was just this idea that the the, the men were like making the stuff happen in the kitchen. And I also found this really kind of awful yet real idea that as these hosts or as front of the house people, your job was just to like stand there and look pretty. And the whole thing was like so backwards and awful. And I think that 
that kind of extends to the different branches. And I did work as a cook for a little while and I still found the same thing. And it's funny too, because a part of me, I think I like that, um, like no holds barred real relationship that you develop in the kitchen. But just because you're like, I think you can like curse and be real and be honest and be in the moment and still not be, an asshole or still not be sexist. Like, I don't think those two things have to go together, but they often do. That's great. Um, The other thing I wanted to start unraveling too is getting into eating disorders. And I'm wondering like, at what point in your life did you first like notice it? And Mm -hmm. were you always kind of self-aware of it? Because sometimes people like develop an eating disorder without even knowing it. And they just think it's normal to, you know, binge eat or throw up after a meal. So I'm kind of curious, kind of like a two-part question. I kind of just ramble on all the time, but um, kind of like when it started and were you self-aware that you had an eating disorder? Yeah. Um, I think, I think like yes and no. I think those, those are actually good questions that go together because I, on the one hand, I think I did know I've always been, I think, a little bit fucked up about food, a little obsessed with about a little obsessed about food, um, kind of maybe using food in a way that wasn't necessarily healthy, like eating when I was lonely, eating when I was bored, eating when I was celebrating, eating when I was sad, whatever, like kind of using food for something other than just uh, sustenance and satisfaction and the things that food I think can and should provide. Um, and then I got really bad when I was super excited to go to college in New York city. And my idea was that, you know, everyone wants to have like a fresh start when they go to college. And part of my idea for a fresh start was that I wanted to be a whole lot thinner than I was. And so I started dieting and, Maybe at the beginning, there was something kind of healthy about it, perhaps, but it just got more and more controlled and obsessive and rigid and um, started taking up more and more of my mind. And one year later, I was in the student student health office at school being diagnosed with anorexia, which even at the time felt like not quite true because I've just always loved food and it didn't seem quite right. But I think, you know, whatever was the right diagnosis, it was right that I was really unhappy with food and always kind of in a war with food in my body. And I could never win that war, no matter how hard I tried. And I don't know whether it was that the therapist and the nutritionist that I saw were like not the best or that I was just not in a place where I was ready to accept their help and to change because I kind of gained some weight. So I was at a nor I looked normal, but I was still going back and forth in various points of time between restricting my food kind of as much as I could manage and eating as little as I could manage. And then I would get to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And then I would binge and I would wake up the next morning feeling like sweaty and awful and full of shame. And it was just the worst cycle and it was so painful. And so part of me totally knew that this was not healthy and that this was not good. And I was very secretive about it. But another part of me kind of thought, oh, maybe this is always just how I'm going to be. Or, you know, I think there was also a really real component of denial going on. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Like when I talk to clients or even people online that have reached out through the show, and because I've talked about binge eating, like I've struggled with it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting hearing other people's stories where, you know, they get to a point where it just became part of their life and they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's what I do. And mm-hmm. like, I come from a place where I used to be overweight. I lost a bunch of weight and, you know, started eating healthy. But I got to a point where I was eating healthy that I was restricting myself so much from the foods that I wanted that it, you know, kind of hit me in the face down the line where I started binge eating. So it's almost like like the whole idea of like eating disorders, it's so tough for people and you're starting to see it more, like even Mm -hmm. like emotional eating. 
And yes. I'm, I'm always like thinking like, where does it all stem from? And I'm wondering if you're even able to like answer that question. Like, do you like remember like a point of your life, like where it could have like started? Like if did something trigger you, like, like anything? Wow. I think that that's such a big, good question, yeah. but there's something for me anyway, there's a lot of things it stems from. Like, I do think our culture is really fucked up about food in our bodies and, you know, we're supposed to all look a certain way and our worth is determined according to, like, this cultural... I almost feel like it's in the air, like, this idea that if thinner is better, you know, and and so it food becomes, like, a moral issue. So I think there's that kind of cultural component. And then there maybe there's a certain biological component. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. And it kind of intuitively makes sense that there is because some people just, like, don't seem to have this insatiable need for more that I seem to have always had. And part of it maybe is, I, I mean, I look at my family and I wrote about a little bit in my book, like my mom's own struggles with being on a diet, being off a diet, gaining weight, losing weight, and the whole time never being happy with herself and sort of watching that as I grew up. Um, I think there's so many factors and I think, I mean, I'm so glad that you're talking about it and that people are, I think, starting to talk about it because it can feel so lonely and so shameful. And I think just like realizing that we're so not alone is really important. No, oh, definitely. And I'm happy you brought up that thing with your mother because that's the one thing I can't remember who said this on my show, but you know, kids will pick up what their parents do, like whatever <laughs> words they say, even if, you know, one of like say your mother said something about another woman that she gained weight now that child is like kind of like will pick up that behavior like now looking at other people if they've gained weight and you like develop all these behaviors way way back when you were say five six or seven then you grow up into an adult and they're just like stuck in your your brain and now you have this weird relationship with your body and food and that's like one of my worries is that when I become a father, like I'm like, am I gonna screw up my kids like, <laughs> like that? Like that's like one of my biggest worries. But yeah, yeah I, I find that yeah. the kind of common trend is like, how was your parents when you were young? Were they worried about the scale? Were they worried about what they were eating? Were they preventing you from eating any kind of sweets all the time? And now when you're older, you go to the store and you're gonna buy whatever you want. Right. Um, I, to I totally agree with you. And, you know, I have the same worry about if I have kids. But I think for, you know, for both of us, like if or when we have kids, I think we're doing the most important work, which is like working through our own shit, right? Like, um, I think, and I think that I, or I do know people who've had parents who really have struggled with this kind of stuff and then they in turn do like maybe both of us but then I also know people both other ways like maybe their parents really were always unhappy with the way they looked or always obsessed about the scale but they're fine or their parents were fine and yet they have these concerns so it, you know I think there is an element there's a mysterious element of like yeah. who knows why this is happening but I think that there is something that we passed down for sure and that's one of the reasons like I, I think for me this is still something that I mean I'm a million times from where I used to be but yet I still have to work every day to be kind to myself and to try to make peace with this stuff and I think um that I hope that that continues if I have children Oh, definitely. And going back to when you were, like, diagnosed with anorexia, what was kind of the next things that happened in your life? Like, did you attack the situation right away, or were you like, oh, these guys don't know anything about me, and kind of just lived your life? Like, what was, like, the next step in your life after that? Yeah, so I think kind of my reaction was was still very diseased. Um, I, I thought... I mean, I had really also the body dysmorphia stuff of this, of this eating disorder milieu. And so I, you know, I thought, well, if I am 
so skinny that they're saying you have anorexia. And of course, since then, I've learned that you cannot see an eating disorder from looking at someone's body. But I didn't really understand that. And I thought, oh, well, I just need to eat more, which I went about in this really kind of destructive way. And um, so I did that whole like, and then I would be terrified that I was gaining weight or that my jeans weren't zipping up and feel like a failure and feel just kind of overcome with waves of self-loathing and then vow that I was going to do it all differently the next day and wake up and try to stick to some sort of like crazy diet of only eating like vegetables and tofu or something. Um, and then that, that kind of awful cycle and that all changed. And, and I didn't, you know, and that, those various times there were a few weeks or a few months where I would feel like things were all right. And then I'd be all of a sudden back in the misery. And I, um, it was about almost seven years ago. Now I moved back to New York from Philadelphia and it was a lot of change going on in my life. I had just broken up with a boyfriend who wasn't good for me. So it was a good decision. And I was super excited to be back in New York. I had a new job. I had a new apartment. I felt like I was in a really good place and yet I couldn't stop binging. And that like really scared me because I've always been a seeker and someone who's like looked for answers. And I had a bunch of habits that I did like journaling after I would binge. And a lot of times it would be really clear like, oh, my boss yelled at me. Oh, I had a really bad day. But this time I kind of came up blank. Like I just did not know what was going on. And that's scared me. And I really felt like this food stuff was so much bigger and more powerful than I was. And, um, a friend had told me about Overeaters Anonymous and I thought, Oh, what a terrible name. No way. I don't want to go to that. But I was desperate and I needed help and I was like looking for anything. So I went one night and this friend said she was going to meet me and she didn't meet, she had like messed up and forgot what day it was and she didn't meet me. And I was so nervous to be there and so angry at her. And yet I heard these people in this room, it was like over a bodega in this crappy room and people were sharing the things that I had barely admitted to myself. Like they were kind of sharing the things that my brain said to myself out loud, like the worst secrets about like, throwing away food and then digging it up and then throwing it away again and then putting something on top of it and then digging it up again. Like all of these things that I did, but I was way too afraid to admit to anyone. And they were just like sharing these things and then they were laughing and giving each other hugs. And I was like, my mind was blown. I didn't know what I walked into, but that really ended up being the beginning of my healing process and kind of, moving past this stuck place of hurting myself with food. So if you had to give advice for someone who is a binge eater and doesn't have, you know, a support group like that, like what are yeah. some steps that someone can do today to kind of start the process? Well, I think, you know, I don't think you necessarily need a support group, but I do think everyone needs someone in their life that they can share things with because we're not, we're, you know, we're social people as humans and we're not supposed to be alone with our hardest stuff. So I think the first thing is just find someone you trust that you can share honestly with. And I think just that like being honest and getting these things out of your head is really helpful and has been really helpful to me. And the other thing is I, I just spent so much time and energy beating myself up for this. I had so much shame that I had this thing. I felt like it was so like uncool or, you know, I just, I thought it was somehow superficial. I had all, and I think just like be gentle with yourself. So many people struggle with this. It's okay. And extending yourself some compassion and gentleness and kindness is super essential. 
And I think uh, one of the most common things I see a lot is that, you know, people decide that, hey, I'm going to start eating healthy. And then that moment where they get tested, where, say, they go out to a restaurant with a bunch of friends and they end up binge eating right there and then. And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, I already screwed up, whatever, F it. And then they're like, I'll just start on Monday. Where it's like, it's not the end of the world. Like, you can just, like, pick it up again for your next meal. You don't have to just be like, fuck it, whatever, I screwed up, and I'm just going to let this thing slide. And then the day rolls into, like, another week of just horrible eating patterns. Yes, I think I used to so subscribe to that, like, all-or-nothing mentality, right? Where it's like, either you're really good, and you're perfect, and you stick to everything completely, or, like, all bets are off, and it's just, like, crazy. And I think, for me, a lot of recovery, too, has been finding the middle ground where, you know, I'm not some sort of robot. Like, I eat food that's not always, like, the ideal thing at every moment, but I try my best to make the best decision at, you know, at when I have a meal or when I have a snack, and then I move on and, like, live my life, and there's going to be another meal or snack coming, and it's okay, and I feel like living in that middle ground has been something kind of hard but really cool for me to learn. So now, like, over the years, like, say today, like, do you have any kind of, like, tendencies to binge or anything like that? Or do you have any, like, triggers that set you off that, you know, I don't know, if you see pizza, you're like, okay, game over. I'm going to eat the entire box. Like, do you have any of those still hanging around in your life? I don't. You know, I I don't binge anymore. For the I, I can say that, like, for the last six and a half years, I haven't, which is not to say I haven't eaten too much, but I think if I'm, so I, you know, just also to have like these, I try to have three meals a day and then like a snack or two if I need it. And so I think not being, I think a lot of, for me, the binging was so often propelled by restricting because I think biologically, like if your body is hungry and you're not feeding it, and you're not giving it the nutrients it needs, it's going to be mad at you. Like, it's going to try to get that, even if it's overblown. So I think just, like, kind of eating enough is and and doing that consistently really helps not binge. And um, which is not to say, like, I never eat too much or eat something that's not healthy, but, I mean, that is really a miracle for me to say that to you because – it used to be that if I had, or like sweets were really big for me. And like, if I had, a, there, if there was a party in my office and there was like a piece of cake, I would be thinking about sugar, like getting my fix, almost like I'm a drug addict. Like I would be thinking about it all afternoon and I would like sneak back to the place where the cake was and try to take like tiny pieces and all this stuff and all these games that I would play in my head. And I really don't do that anymore. Like, occasionally I will eat, like, a dessert when I try to do it when I'm, like, out with friends or getting ice cream with my fiancé. And, like, I enjoy it and then that's it. And then I move on with my life. And that is a crazy thing that I can say that, honestly. (laughs) It did not used to be that way. Yeah, and, like, for me, like, I tell people kind of, to set yourself up for success because I know for me personally like I love cheesecake and I can literally just eat in the entire thing to myself but if I (laughs) yeah like but if I I don't know buy a piece of cheesecake or something like that and I eat half of it and freeze it I would have to like physically take it out of my freezer let it thaw out and then eat it that like wait time will make me not want to actually go through that necessary step And I've done that with actually some other um, guys that I've trained online where, you know, they're just used to drinking six beers every single day after work. I'm like, okay, well, keep your beer outside in, like, room temperature. And if you want all six, put it in the fridge and wait for it. Most of the time, they don't want to wait for it. So I find, like, small things like that help a lot down the road. Totally. When I first started in OA, someone had me make a list of, like, red, yellow, and green light foods, and the green light foods were, like, no problem. The yellow light foods, sometimes they would trigger something, and the red light foods were, like, dangerous. And just at the beginning, like, 
those red and yellow light foods, I just didn't keep those around in my house. And I think that even helps too. Like, right, if you want it, you have to consciously make the decision to go and get it or make it. And that extra step makes you like pause. And in that pause, you can make a much better decision than when you're just like in the heat of the moment, standing by the fridge, like going for it. Yeah, like that's the best way to describe it is like you just need to break that like pathway where if you know you have something in your fridge that you're not supposed to eat and it's just so available that you don't even have to think about going get to get it. And like another one I've told clients to do is like put a like a sticky note on it and like write something stupid like, hey, asshole. So you have to like read it. And then that just stops that pathway. So you have like a second to be like, oh, what am I doing? I'm just like eating for no apparent reason. Yeah, I love that. Right. <laughs> right. It's like that extra attention that you yeah. pay, an extra moment. Yes. Um, so the other thing I wanted to bring up is body image. And I love having women on my show that, you know, see and like, coach a lot of women that most likely have had these issues for a long time and it's like it's a such a like dear thing to me because I train primarily like 90% of all my clients were female and it just hurts me so much that you know like someone really really fit like I have this one client in mind where she can physically do six bodyweight chin-ups and like deadlift over 200 pounds but she'll still say that this part's fat or this part's too flabby and I'm like you look amazing. Like, how are you able to say that about yourself? So I'm curious about, like, what you do with the female clients that you have when it comes to body image issues. Yeah, I mean, body image, I think, is so hard. And, of course, it's hard. We're looking at these crazy, unrealistic images of people all the time that look like 1% or less of the human population. And like, that's what we see over and over again as like the only thing that's acceptable or even the only thing that exists. And, um, you know, I think it's changing a little bit. Self just made a new cover with interact um, with our fellow human oh, beings. Oh. Gump was a gracious you with a gump impersonation. I'm sorry. It's all good. Um, okay, I got it. Awesome. I'm sorry. That was raw. I love it. It's part of it's all right. But um anyway, I think that that's kind of changing and we're starting to see these pictures and images of different kinds of bodies but I think it's like it's a hard battle and I think a few things that have helped me are kind of what you said like I can't do any chin-ups but you know I can like go have a three-hour walk around Manhattan I can go to yoga class I can like hug my friends, you know, whatever, like all these amazing things that my body does and how my body propels me through life and kind of appreciating it for that instead of for how it looks. That's a kind of a start. Um, and surrounding myself with people who love me for who I am and not because of a certain size that I am. Um, and Kind of another thing for me too has just been recognizing like I still have this problem, or I don't know if it's a problem, but every time I see pictures of myself, it's very rarely that I don't kind of like cringe and find something to pick apart. And so I've just been telling myself that my eyes are broken. I can't I can't judge myself accurately. And just knowing that that I can't see myself, so I'm not even gonna try is kind of a start and it's like I'm not even going to worry about it like a picture is just capturing a moment and I know of course we all want to look good and feel good but um the more I can sort of say like it's not my business my business is just to like take as the best care of myself as I can live my life do my thing you know like be kind to others all the things that I want to do in my life and not and focus on those as much as possible and on the way it looks as little as possible. But I know that's way easier said than done. Yeah. 
But, like, the one thing I was thinking about recently is, like, you know, back in the, like, 90s where you take a photo of yourself or with a friend and then you would have to wait for those photos to develop. You'd go pick those photos up and then look at them. I don't think back then was a lot of, like, oh, I don't like this picture. We're not going to use it compared to, like, today where, you know, teenage girls will take selfies, but they'll take, like, 200 before the one that they both approve of. Yeah. And I'm, like... How does like our like that just proves how our environment just changes everything. So like I I tell every female client like what are you following online first of all? Yes. Right? Cuz like that's a huge influence. And I think like this whole idea of like social media like when you look at it people are posting photos and videos of themselves in the best case scenario. You're never gonna see a video where you just wake up and roll out of bed and you're just like, ugh, you look like a monster. No one's gonna post that online. But Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's but even looking back, like I was I saw some like friends reruns on and I was looking at all the women in that show and like their arms to me, I, I mean, and everyone has different bodies and if your body is a thin body, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. But like their arms look like toothpicks. Like they're they're just so skinny and it does, to me, it's just such a narrow idea of what a person is supposed to look like. Like, people come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and can be healthy and successful and badass and, and look really different. So I think you're really on to something with that idea of, like, paying attention to who you're following and what you're looking at. And I really try to make sure that my own feeds and stuff are, like, full of stuff that makes me feel better after looking at them, not worse about myself. And the other thing, too, like, for coaches especially, like, if you can almost, like, show that you're also human to your clients, they would appreciate it a lot more. And, like, one example I always give to my clients is when I hear one of the women I train say that they can't fit into something or they went to the store to buy something they couldn't fit into it. I'm like, you know what? The fact that I work out, I have bigger legs, so when I go to... H&M to buy a pair of pants I have to go up I think three waist sizes in order for my thighs to, and calves to fit into the pants it's like the clothing that's made for people out there is made for like the stick models that they have on fashion week and not for people who are working out building muscle or just are regular people <laughs> right 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 Totally. And I, I mean, I've also had my share of like nervous breakdowns in dressing rooms. And um, yeah, even like this whole thing I was telling you before about trying to find a wedding dress. I mean, I usually wear a size like somewhere between eight or 10 or somewhere in there. My wedding dress is a size 18 because for some reason they were like, that's they run small or they, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy, but it just reminds me that it's just a number that someone affixed to mm-hmm. a garment and it's not a commentary on like you or your value or even your appearance. Like it's just such a silly arbitrary thing made by someone who's trying to sell you something. No, oh, definitely. Um, the other question I wanted to get into is from uh, Sumi on Instagram, because along the lines of body image, she her question was more towards you know body image and like weight, diet, all that kind of stuff. But for young girls, especially in elementary school, and I know mm-hmm. Sumi has a daughter, and like like how we were talking about social media, like my clients who have kids that are in elementary school already have cell phones. Like, they have iPhones. And I'm like, that's just crazy to me, first of all. So now they're exposed to the entire world that we are on a daily basis. So do you have any advice for parents out there with young kids, especially young girls that are influenced with their phones? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a magic solution, but I do think that that sort of critical voice that we develop that says like, oh, why are these pictures of these models making me feel bad develops with some time and perspective that kids don't have. So I think looking at that stuff together or at least talking about it and like what's going on, um, that kind of critical, compassionate understanding is really crucial. 
And I think like kind of what we were saying before, I think the more you yourself can learn to find some self-love and gentleness and kindness, the more your child will see that in you and hopefully it will rub off. But I think it's so hard. I don't have a kid and I definitely can't pretend to be the expert, but I, I do think that having someone who's aware of this stuff and critical yet empathetic will really help any kid. No, I agree with that. And like the one thing I've noticed with training moms in general is that when their kids know that mom's going to the gym or they're going to go do a bike ride over the weekend, the kid is going to grow up wanting to be just like their mom and be active. Mm -hmm. And I have one client in particular where she'll bring her daughter in sometimes to the gym because then she didn't have a babysitter or whatever. But now her daughter's always asking her, mom, when are you going to the gym next? I want to come. Like she's, I think only three years old and she wants to go to the gym and she's like, so when can I start working out? Right. So, you know, as long as, as a parent, you're showing the importance of exercise, you're not always talking about diet and you just want to be strong. And I think Sumi is going to do well because she's like a small little thing and she can deadlift like close to 300 pounds. So obviously her daughter's going to be like, I want to be strong like mom. So I think that's really important just to show your kids the importance of health rather than focusing on how much you weigh or the fact that, I don't know, your pants can't fit or something like that. Right. Totally. And those like empowering, exciting, fun, challenging moments are like the good parts of working out. Like that's how, what it should be about. Definitely. And maybe last question, cause we're getting close to an hour, but as a foodie, I'm kind of curious what your favorite dishes are and why. Oh my gosh. That's so hard because <laughs> there's so many of them, but that's all right. I'm going to answer anyway. Um, one of my favorite, I mean, I, my favorite food, I think, is wonderful cheese, and I worked in cheese for a while, so I feel like going to one of my favorite cheese stores, like, um, there's a few I love in New York, like the Bedford Cheese Shop, or Murray's, or the District, or um, Stinky Brooklyn, and just, like, picking out some awesome cheeses, some crusty baguette, maybe some charcuterie some fresh fruit like that's kind of one of my favorite meals um but i also love recently i've been cooking these chicken thighs from bon appetit and they're super simple and i cook them in my cast iron skillet in a super high heat and i set off the alarm clock every time but they're like the perfect chicken thighs they have like crispiest amazing skin and they're so juicy i love those Um, But I love cooking. I mean, I'm just one of those people who loves to go to the farmer's market and, like, see what's up and turn that stuff into dinner. And I love eating out and trying new restaurants and trying new restaurants when I travel. And, like, this is one of my favorite things to do. So, I don't know. Was that a cop-out answer? (laughs) Uh, Not not really, but... um... Maybe another question that would be good is that, you know, what's kind of like your go-to healthy recipe? Because I find a lot of people that are new to fitness and health, they're mm-hmm. automatically assume, all right, chicken breast and broccoli, let's go. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel like there's so many amazing options. Um, I love roasting veggies, like um, anything in, in fall, like maybe butternut squash and different kind of squashes and that kind of thing. And then in, you know, whatever the season is, but just like uh, tossing some vegetables with olive oil and salt and pepper, or you could do like an everything seasoning or red pepper flakes or whatever you like and roasting them in a really hot oven. They get so caramelized on the outside. And I mean, they're like a treat. It's just vegetables with some olive oil, but they're so good. I love making those and I love, um, making, I, I feel like any kind, you know, chicken sounds boring, but like those chicken thighs are amazing. Or I make some honey mustard and some honey mustard lemon salmon, which is super simple. It's just like a squeeze of lemon, some honey mustard, and then whatever herbs I have and roast that. 
and that's super healthy and comes out really good. So maybe I'll say that with some veggies. And then I've also been doing a lot of like lentils and barley and farro and quinoa and those kind of satisfying whole grains that feel really hearty. And then I can have leftovers and just mix those up like with a salad the next day. And um, I find that delicious and it doesn't feel to me like punishing or like bland at all. It feels really good and tasty. That sounds amazing. And very last question, where can people find you online? What projects do you have coming out? And anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. Thank you so much. You can find me. My website is Hannah Howard, H-A-N-N-A-H, Howard.nyc. My Instagram is Hannah M. Howard. And my Twitter is Hannah Howard. And I hopefully... I'm working on my second book, but for now, you should check out my first book, Feast. It's um, started out as the number one best-selling memoir on Amazon, which I'm really excited about, and I would be honored and thrilled for any of you to read it. Perfect. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. I agree. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to get to talk to you. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 150. Thank you, thank you so much for everyone that's been listening to my show since day one. And thank you, thank you so much for all my new listeners tuning in. And if you haven't already, I highly recommend you start from the very beginning and make your way through and binge listen just like you would on Netflix to every single episode because as I progressed as a podcaster, each episode progressed in quality. And if you haven't already, sign up to my newsletter. The link will be in the show notes. If you want to buy a copy of Feast that Hannah wrote, I will also put in the show notes. And again, keep your eyes out for the link to purchase your very own Cut the Shit, Get Fit t-shirt. That is it for me. Add me on Facebook, Instagram, share this podcast with your friends and family, and I'll continue giving you the best info on health and fitness out there. Until next time, you guys.